Hey, it's Zachy. In this special feature, we took a deep dive into the world of small businesses in Israel. We spoke to three business owners and we asked them to share their insights on business culture in Israel and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on small businesses in the startup nation. You're listening to... Israel Underground. Some aspects of culture are so intrinsic, it's hard to analyze them from within. Israel is home to an overwhelming amount of small businesses. According to the OECD, in 2017, 99.5% of businesses in Israel were small or medium enterprises, employing up to 100 workers each. 51% of those were considered self-employed. What inspires Israelis to go off on their own? Is Israel a particularly nourishing climate for small businesses? And how has the infamous COVID-19 pandemic, which has obviously shaken many elements of society and culture, affected business culture in Israel? We spoke to three small business owners who answered these questions and more. Each of them has business experience outside of Israel prior to opening their businesses here, giving them a unique perspective on the culture here. Hi, I'm Anique. I am from London originally. I've been in Israel almost eight years, and I am a speech and language therapist. So in America, they call me a communication pathologist. Basically means I deal with any kind of communication breakdown. Um, My original studies were in psychology, so I'm really fascinated by human behavior, and I base a lot of my work around practical communication change. You set this career uh, working towards uh, uh, communications pathology, um, and then you've managed to convert this into a, a business of sorts. Is that right? Yeah. In London, I was working as part of a big speech therapy team in mental health hospitals, and I ended up running the whole clinical team with psychologists and occupational therapists and drama and art therapists. Then I moved to Israel, and it's just me on my own in my business. I have three different clinics, um, and I work in all of them as seeing adults and children, couples and families. Um, And yeah, they come to me. They basically find me mostly through word of mouth. And uh, yeah, tried to make a positive difference. So you started your business here in Israel. Is that is that right? That's right. Yeah. What was that experience like for you to, to kind of come from London and then to come into Israel, transplant yourself here and then say, oh, also, I'm going to, you know, do a business here? Well, it was huge and it kind of felt forced on me in a way because I didn't feel like I could fit into the Israeli speech therapy system. It didn't seem to have a space for me. My Hebrew wasn't good enough and speech therapists here aren't really dealing with helping people shout less, helping people manage their anxiety, help people talk about their sadness, stuff that I do. It's not uh, really part of speech therapy here. So I had to carve my own niche. So I found this place between psychology and speech therapy where I could really build a, a powerful business that's really helping people. It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge of language and understanding taxes and understanding the government and even just getting my licensing cost thousands and thousands of shekel and took a couple of years. When I first came here, I I started cleaning to make money and then I taught English and now we're up and running and, and I'm really doing great. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I can assure you that there is at least uh, one Israel-based podcast host that could use uh, help with uh, non-words uh, at the very least, or saying fantastic very frequently. So, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you've definitely got who to work with. Um, 
tell yeah tell me just a little bit more about uh you know that kind of bureaucratic process and and what that meant for you uh in terms of uh signing up for uh licensing and you know you don't have to go into deep into the red tape but just give me a, a little bit of a snapshot of what that looks like Sure. Well, having been qualified for many, many years, I suddenly had to go back to the books and take a multiple choice exam, um, which they had translated into English, but they used Google Translate. So it made zero to like no sense. It was really nonsense. I felt like I was shooting in the dark. I had no idea how I was going to do. And I was a highly qualified, I qualified with distinction from University College London. You know? um, and I think I just scraped it through that test. Um, and then I had to also get my Hebrew up to scratch. So I had to go to Olpan. I didn't speak any Hebrew when I came. I taught myself the alphabet on the way. And then there was also understanding how to become an Osik Patur or Osik Moshe and what all that meant. Something that uh, we imagine could be problematic is, is kind of coming from a, a culture. Uh, I mean, we're from the U.S., you're from London, a culture where business is very much... Uh, centered around the rightness of the customer, uh, so to speak. Um, I don't know how much of that, uh, and the antithesis of that is essentially Israel uh, in business, from what I understand. Can you can you speak a little bit to that phenomenon? Do you find that that's true, or is that kind of a misconception? Okay, I'm going to give a lot of generalization and stereotypes here, so please forgive me. Of course, not all Israelis are like this. But I have tended to stay in the Anglo niche because when I work with Israelis, they try to battle me on my costs. They try to question my diagnoses. They challenge my, my theory, my process. I find myself complain that a lot. Um, they're just not happy customers. Um, and I find my Anglo clients are generally really happy, make really positive behavior change, and it all works really smoothly. So I think not being Israeli, I can't quite get on their level and communicate in a way that makes sense yet. And I believe that, you know, 10 years past, 15 years be here, my Hebrew will get good enough that I'll be able to like, you know, uh, come back with the right bargaining tools and they'll respect me and they won't challenge me so much. <laughs> right now, <laughs> I'm sure. not there. So something that I was curious about, uh, and, and this isn't uh, something that we spoke about beforehand, but I'm just kind of curious about uh, in terms of like self-marketing, uh, in this environment, how are you getting yourself out there and projecting your business to uh, potential clients and, and kind of generating that that hype for your for the product that you're that you're pushing? Well, this is a huge area that I had no experience in. So one of my biggest tools is word of mouth. I had a few big successes, you know, kids with ADHD who could manage their classes children who are very teenagers, boys who are very angry, who were throwing things and after a few sessions with me could communicate their anger and not be violent. A few big wins and those mums became or parents became my spokespeople. You know, one of the blessings of Israel is it's a small country and people talk, uh, but I feel really like a fish out of water. It's not it's not my favorite part of my job. For sure. <laughs> so um, speaking of, of that kind of feeling of fish out of water, I guess the whole entirety of the world has kind of felt that way in uh, in recent uh, year and a half. Um, tell me a little bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected your your business, if at all. Um, I'm sure that, you know, you can um, maybe do your sessions over Zoom or something like that. But you know, speak to me a little bit about um, kind of how that changed your process. 
Wow, Zeki. I mean, as an individual, I was changed dramatically, like all of us were, by social isolation. I'm a communicator and uh, trapped me away from people. That was really hard. I battled with my own levels of anxiety and anger and isolation, and I had to get through that. And then, yeah, logistically managing my clients. Um, I started through Zoom. It didn't fit for everyone. I decided we could walk around fields at a two meter distance. And then some people, I saw them on balconies and some people, I was on a separate window and, you know, just trying to think of creative ways around these issues. Unfortunately, a lot of adults just had to stop their therapy because their kids were at home and, and, you know, they couldn't concentrate on themselves. And then money got tight for some people and they had to stop their therapy. And then, of course, the coupon put all their money into vaccines and COVID, you know, sickness. And so they took away all of the reimbursement that they used to give for private therapists. Um, so that was another hit to my business. What bothered me most was the whole COVID pandemic made people need therapy so much more. And yet they couldn't afford it or find time for it. So just the general client base were sadder, were more anxious, were more angry, um, had lower self-esteem because less uh, social experiences. Kids who were born in COVID, their social skills are much less, their language skills are much less because they just haven't had the same exposure. I could go on and on about this. It's just countless. I think the secondary impacts of these segels are just, you know, following us around and it's a huge loss. I really ha have to find some kind of hope and positivity from all this. Um, it's a, it, trust me, that's not a feeling specific to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely something that we're all uh, working for. My recommendation is uh, if you find yourself in a lockdown with nothing better to do, start a podcast. Wait, uh, <laughs> it's going well for you. Yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so um, moving away from, I guess, the global horror story, let's focus in a little bit more on specifically you. I'd like to hear uh, a little more about, you know, what are your craziest stories? What are the what are the sessions that were just uh, just a little off the wall? Um, OK, so I had an opera singer come to me who couldn't trill his R's so he could do you know and he was singing Italian and there's a lot of this kind of so I got this uh, religious guy lying on the floor in my clinic getting his tongue all the way back in his throat and gargling water it took me 45 minutes and he was trilling his R's and still is now so that was kind of unique <laughs> that's not a bad that's didn't take that long I would have expected you know weeks and weeks of uh of trial and error like I say, I'm short-term solution focused. I try to get this stuff done. And if I can't do it, I'm not the right therapist. If anyone wants to find out about me, I'm Ask Anique um, on Facebook. You can find me. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for the time. It's been lovely talking to you. It was interesting to hear about the issues specific to healthcare-related businesses from Anique, particularly that as a result of the pandemic, healthcare providers are pulling funding that would go towards reimbursing potential clients. In the next interview, we spoke with Adina Mark Capone, CEO of A to Z Events Israel, an event planning business which primarily caters to people from overseas who want to have events here in Israel. Hey, my name is Adina Mark Capone, um, an event planner. My company is called A to Z Events Israel. We run a 
um, event planning company for weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and other romantic occasions, and also business events. So as I understand it, you came here from America, uh, where you had a business there. How has that kind of impacted your approach to business here? I, when I lived in, in Woodman, New York, I was uh, I owned an interior design company with my then husband. So there was a lot of similar customer relations, meaning like we were dealing with like intimate um, discussions and, and issues with families because, you know, when you're when you're working on interior design and a bedroom or a kitchen, you know, you kind of learn a lot about the family and their dynamics and their needs um, and, and, and a high end uh, product. You know, the, the business was a high end product. And so this is very similar to that. I took a lot of that when I opened my business here in Israel many years later. Um, working, bridging the gap between uh, mostly Americans, but also Europeans and Australians and um, and Canadians who are making their their special events here in Israel. So, um, living here for as long as I have been living here, I understand the, the the culture. And you know, when I when I say that sometimes that I that I um, understand the language, sometimes it's an actual language, um, and sometimes it's a cultural language. And so I, I try and bridge those gaps and and help people navigate. There's again, a lot of intimacy in terms of our relationship, dealing with, uh, you know, pretty milestone events, family dynamics, family relationships. Okay, so you establish the roots, and then uh, from there, you're able to uh, to sprout a little bit and, and, and grow. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about, you know, a, a crucial part of your business, as I understand it, is that it is in Israel. Uh, so I wanted to hear kind of your perspective on Israel-specific challenges uh, and benefits even for, for owning a business here in, in this country? I'd like to say highlight of what I do is, you know, I've had, I've had people ask me or offer me to do their events elsewhere. And I really focus and want to bring people to Israel. That is definitely for me key. I'm not looking to bring anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. I'm not trying to, you know, to get anyone to, to make Aliyah or anything like that. But I do like making the connection. Um, one of the things that I really try and focus on with my events is to tell people that it's not any, you know, lower in standard. I mean, the standards are just as high, uh, but it's a different flavor. It's a different style. It's a different vibe. Events in Israel are definitely more casual. Um, the food's a little bit different. The setup and the structure is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that you've come from, uh, you know, this varied uh, business background. You have uh, U.S. experience. You have Israel experience. I kind of wanted to, to ask if there's anything that, you know, uh, you'd like to bring over uh, if, or you wish was here, uh, I guess, from the from the U.S. Uh, business experience um, that you, you know, is is lacking here in Israel? So first and foremost, I think you'll find us in a lot of industries, not just in my industry, but certainly the customer service um, attitude, meaning a lot of times the policies are actually okay. The, the customer service policies are actually fine and they're just as good as, as anywhere else but it's more like in a personality and in an attitude. So I tell my children, you know, like the difference of when I call my bank in the United States and when I call my bank in Israel. So in the, in the United States, it's a lot of help you, ma'am. What else could I do for you today, ma'am? Is there anything else, ma'am? And sorry that you had to wait so long on hold, ma'am. And you know, when in Israel, it's sort of like, if anyone will ever pick up the phone in the next day or two, I'll be so happy. And if you could just qu really quickly answer my question, like you'll make my day. It's in almost every industry or in a lot of industries, where they really, um, they really want to help you and do the best they, they can for you, and they just need a little bit more, more training of how to get that across. <laughs> um, okay, so so you've had this business for for how long? Um, twelve years. Twelve years. So you've had plenty of time to gain momentum. Uh, tell me a little bit more about how 
COVID impacted your way of working and, and the way that your business has survived un- until now? Uh, it took us all by surprise, like it did for, for most places and most industries. Um, I actually remember I had a bunch of events planned for August of August and September of 2020. And I remember in um, May telling them, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Like you're going to be, you'll be here by the end, by the end of the summer, you'll be back, <laughs> you know, for the, for the holidays. So that was like, you know, we didn't, we just had no idea what was going on. A lot more of my, a lot more of the Anglos or Americans who are living in Israel are now looking for using event planners more than they did before. Um, they need the guidance. They need the understanding. They need the handholding. They need someone who's like, you know, I, I, I've been through events with families and, and with couples that were moved two, three, four times, canceled two, three times. They can use that. That's a very, very, very helpful tool to have somebody who's taking care of that for them. Someone who's on the finger of the pulse of all the different changes. And how we deal with it is, is a lots of, I've learned a lot of legal terms and I've learned to navigate a lot of contracts, which I've always done before, but now even more so in the sense of customizing them and negotiating them for each individual event, as I mentioned. So lots of um, Corona clauses. And I think another big part of it is I feel like I do a lot of emotional um, guidance and support for the families, for the brides, for the grooms, and for the families who are involved. So uh, tell me, I'm curious, I'm thinking about it now, and you've done uh, you know, 12 years of experience. It's a lot of events. Um, and I wanted to hear if you had any kind of uh, standout stories that you'd like to share. Yeah, there, there's always a few that come to mind. Um, I had a situation where the bride and groom canceled the wedding on the day of the wedding, the morning of the wedding. Uh, so they left you standing at the altar. They sort of left me standing at the altar to this day. I'm not even really sure what happened. But get ready for this. A few hours later, they, they called it back. Oh, wow. That was, that was out of left field, as they say. So. It was already after we had kind of disbanded, dismantled the entire wedding, and then they wanted to bring it back. So we we brought back whatever we could and pulled it all together. Listen, Adina, I I really appreciate your time. Uh, Until now, I wanted to ask before we wrap things up if there's anything else that you you'd like to share before we go. I mean, I want to share that you know we're we're approaching a kind of a deja vu um, in terms of the the pandemic, but I want to say that as soon as the um, government is ready to let people come back. We're ready to have you. The events are ready to go. Um, so don't be scared and come back as soon as you can. Our last interview was with Chaim Davids, founder of Prohibition Pickle, a craft deli dedicated to bringing the nostalgic foods associated with American Ashkenazi cuisine to Israel. My name is Chaim Davids. I am uh, 38, married. I got three beautiful little girls. We live in Gush Etzion. I grew up originally in, uh, in the East Coast, though I made Aliyah 11 years ago from California. And uh, here in Gush Etzion, I have a small deli called Prohibition Pickle. So, so Prohibition Pickle, um, there's a lot of jazz and a lot of glitter, um, but Besachakol, we're a deli. What's really been missing in Israel for a really long time is a deli. The whole mystery and lore around it really started as a, as a result of the, of, uh, of the corona. Um, you know, I've been a restaurant chef most of my career and looking to transition out of being behind the stove and really focus on um, on giving a platform to really great foods and, and marketing them, um, foods that are really nostalgic, things that I thought were missing from the culture. Uh, so I set out a couple years ago to build uh, this deli model and I recruited partners and we were finally scouting out places. We were checking out uh, locations in Shukmachan Yehuda area and then the Corona hit and then we went underground, right? Just like uh, 
a lot of uh, restaurants were shuttered because of the, the corona. You, you saw pop-up uh, events happening everywhere, private chef work going on. So I too uh, turned our two meter guest bedroom into this little mini sort of pickle factory doing just a few basic pickles and condiments, hot sauces, homemade mustard, things like that. Uh, a couple weeks later I introduced um, herring and it just exploded. Uh, four months later, we took on uh, we took on a space, an actual restaurant space in a, in a mall in the area, and here we are now. Well, wow, that's that's uh, quite the awesome success story. So you've managed to thrive even in spite of, or uh, maybe even as a result of the the pandemic. Um, I wouldn't say it's a success story. <laughs> I'll say I'm successful when uh, when we really make it. But we we've, we've proven the model, and folks are really into it. And I think it really took that for me, I guess, to prove that I can do it. Just to, I guess to start off smaller, a little less pressure. You know, there's uh, this became more acceptable, sort of these these home businesses, people are everybody's inside anyways, building out a delivery schedule is pretty easy, sort of like, you know, are you home tomorrow? I'll be like, yeah, we're not going anywhere. Great. I'll be by whenever. <laughs> so if you're building out a Kab Chalukah logistics, um, it's a really great starting point um, just to have everybody at their house and fully engaged with their Facebook and Instagram, I guess. So I want to drill down a little bit further into, uh, I guess, specifically about the pandemic and how it's affected uh, your your business, because I understand that, you know, there there are some positive aspects in that, you know, you have a captive audience, so to speak. But uh, has there been any kind of, I guess, negative effect? Yeah. Um, I mean, for one, you have far less overhead when you're a home business and now that I'm bigger. Uh, when there's a sort of general feeling of desperation and scarcity, folks are a little more generous with discounting. Um, but now that sort of the reality is, is, you know, I guess things are coming back to normal, so to speak, but at the same time unraveling, um, a lot of those early permissions are less relevant. So now I'm finding myself in a place where there's a there's a, an expectation for like the, the normal standard of the way businesses operate, but but really we're living in a time where it's little still kind of unsure. This is just sort of this awkwardness. The the, the old rules of, of growing a business organically are, are a little less relevant now. There's um there's a different attitude and an attitude of uh, of uh, of going back to scarcity. So I guess moving away from pandemic impact, uh, talk to me a little bit more about. Specifically, I mean, you come from America, right? You're an Ole. Uh, talk to me about the Israel-specific challenges uh, of owning a business here. What was that process like for you to come from uh, one very specific uh, business culture? Um, even if you weren't running a business there, you know, you still uh, interacted with uh, businesses on a daily basis. So from being imbibed kind of in that culture, uh, what was it like for you to, to come here and to start interacting with businesses and even, you know, own a business here? Uh, in terms of of that business mindset, that business culture, we're in Israel specifically in, in uh, the the Anaf Amazon in the in food service. Um, there's a tremendous amount of red tape, um, and small businesses are held accountable to the same specs that large businesses are. For example, making pickles. One of the reasons we call the prohibition pickle because we were sort of illicitly producing pickles. It's this, the satire is, is hey, we're not allowed to make pickles. We're making them anyways. We don't have a, at the time, we didn't have Tudat Kashut, now we did. Uh, we, we adopted the local Kashut and we didn't have a Misrata Briut. We applied for our, our health department certification now, um, but we get rejected on the simple basis of uh, this is something that only a Yatsran, a producer, is allowed to do. You are not a producer, you're a, a restaurant, for example. Hold on. For... What is the problem with making pickles over any other food. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta stop and explain that one to me because it sounds like we're stumbling upon a, a criminal underground here. 
of uh, of pickle producers because it's not putting a pickle on a plate with salt and olive oil right you know it's easy to get a license to make a hamburger or falafel but anytime you're you're introducing elements like fermentation and bacteria and time and temperature there's always this 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 uh this element of um of danger of foodborne illness um they're like one of the largest pickle producers these are companies that were established around the, the time the state was established. And the rules were being kind of written at the same time. Um, anybody who comes after is gonna be held to the same standard. So here, you know, I wanna make 200 kilos of pickles a week. Um, well, this is what a Yatsran does. This is what a factory does um, because they've defined that. And now you're gonna be held to the same standard. And because, they're, because those regulations are only given to pickle factories, there is no code written for a restaurant to make pickles. Therefore restaurants- So surprisingly, there's a little bit more bureaucracy in the Israeli business culture. But you also have to know, you have to come here with teeth. I mean, you know, you know anybody who's, who's gotten off the boat with, you know, so to speak, or a Nefesh Benefesh chartered flight with glitter in their eyes, um, knows that they either have a secure job that they're working overseas, American hours, their American company, or they're here, and they're going to figure it out. And um, that's it. You know, we come out guns blazing and we do what the locals do, and that is show teeth. And the advantage, uh, which you asked earlier, if I'm going to loop it back around to what are the challenges and what the advantages are that um, you can be an entrepreneur here and um, and you can do everything that you're not supposed to do <laughs> and you can fight back. <laughs> you can fight back. You could say, you can you can hold them accountable for saying, like, this isn't clear. You can be what they call the tahalikh in process for extended periods of time. You'd be surprised how many businesses um, not just in the in food service ha, have been operating, you know, for five, 10 years without actually being licensed because the government bodies don't speak with each other. Um, so you can do everything according by the book, but not 100% because there isn't there isn't one unified body. And once you learn that, um, you you play uh, you play cat and mouse. So most people play cat and mouse. Okay, you got to tell me a little bit more about these pickles. Now, now we're getting deep into the into the pickle realm here. I want to hear a little bit more. <laughs> a pickle isn't a pickle, and we don't just do pickles. We, we we pickle things. You know, it's the art of food preservation. Long long before there was refrigeration, folks would uh, pack their foods in salt and brine. Um, they would preserve the bounty of the of the good season and and save it uh, for the. the for the for the cold winter for the time of scarcity, so um, there's there's pickling for necessity and there's pickling for pleasure, and that's what we're doing, you know, just um, lots of friendly, murky, dark, mysterious water with garlic and dill. I mean, what is a pickle? You take you take cucumber, you take vegetables, and there's this um, there's this uh, bacteria. It's called uh, lactobacillus, and we're going to grow it. So what you do is you take in things that are normally going to spoil, and you're controlling their spoiling with a certain level of salinity. All that good bacteria can grow. And, and that's how you make pickles. So it's something that's alive. There's a lot of, uh, a lot more than just the crunch and, and the whole daily culture around it. What are the aspirations of your business, so to speak? Um, we want to make, we want to make Ashkenazi food great again. And that's why we've coined it the Ashkenazi soul food revival. It's, it's so much more than just um, nostalgic foods there. We're reinventing um, old Eastern European flavors and New York flavors and, uh, and making them exciting. Do you have any notable pickle horror stories that you can share with us? Yeah, you know, things sometimes bubble when they're not supposed to be bubbling and then we have to throw them away. <laughs> you know, um, I'm trying to give people pleasure here, not not uh, botulism. And, um, and then that's why there are checks and balances and that's why the sort of real test has to come down hard. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm trained in these things. I've been doing them for many years. 
I think one horror story was, you know, more in the beginning when I was first starting out doing R&D, just starting to scale up. I was talking to a few people every week, then a few dozen people, and I was still working out in my apartment. And uh, I don't know, I lost a few batches of pickles. Commercial pickles, they use calcium chloride very often to uh, as a firming agent to make sure your pickles stay crunchy. And the really good thick skin, like Kirby's American style cucumbers aren't available out here. So I have to work with these uh, Persian cucumbers, the classic uh, local variety. And uh, they don't always come out so crunchy even now. But uh, in the beginning I was adding, I was trying to add a lot of tannin. Tannin, like, you know, what makes your mouth pucker when you drink a red wine or when you over steep your cup of tea. Those are firming agents, those help your pickles stay crunchy. So I add tea to my brine when I make pickles and I didn't have green tea and I used this black tea. And I had like, like I don't know, like a half a kilo of this dark black tea floating in my pickles and it stayed in the pickles. And I pulled out the barrel after like a week of waiting and I have customers waiting for these pickles. And they're these like gross black pickles that are stained from the tea. I was horrified. It was like two in the morning and I'm like dragging these trash bags up the stairs looking like, you know, I'm hauling a dead body out to the dumpster, <laughs> you know? But that's, that's part of, uh, of R&D and hopefully you're learning lessons when you're still small and, and you don't, you know, lose a ton of orders or, you know, heaven forbid, poison somebody with this, you know, deathly black pickle. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? You can follow me on, on Facebook and Instagram at, at, uh, at Prohibition Pickle. We will deliver just about anywhere in the country. All of our interviewees immigrated to Israel, giving them a particular insight into some of the Israel-specific elements of small business culture here. While there were some common complaints about operating a business here, most of which could be categorized under Israeli chutzpah, it was also interesting to note the differences between the different industries, how they are affected by bureaucratic systems, and how they interact with Israeli society at large. So, what is business culture in Israel? Have you been inspired to join the 99.5% of small businesses here? Let us know. You can reach out to us on anchor.fm slash israel-underground or follow us on Facebook at il.underground. Israel Underground is written and produced by Eden and Zaki farber Hennessy. All additional audio is used under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening.